All right. Uh, if y'all would open up your Bibles to Luke chapter fifteen. Luke chapter 15, we have been going through the very famous parable, the prodigal son, and uh, we are in the third part of this parable, the last part, and uh, we wanted to go through it slow because it is very famous, and hopefully this has helped open up our eyes to behold more of the wonders that are in God's Word. What's happened so far in this parable is that the younger son has taken the inheritance from his father, and he's run, he's wasted it all. And now finally, after he spent everything, he's come back. And we saw last week that the father ran out to meet him, to greet him, to welcome him home, especially because he didn't deserve it. And in light of that, now we're going to hit this third part. Now we're going to see what does the older son think about what just happened. That's the context in which we're reading. So actually, let me start at verses 1 through 3, and then we'll skip down to verse 20. Now the tax collectors and sinners, they were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus told them this parable. Verse 20, it's the father seeing the son come back. And it says, But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to the father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, here's the part we'll look at. Now, his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And the servant said to him, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But the older son was angry. And he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I've slaved for you and I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? And the father said to him, Son, You are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do look to you for help. We look to our triune God for help because we know Father, Son, Holy Spirit We need you, the one God, and three persons. Father, we need you that even in eternity past, you would ordain that this would be the moment where we might believe. Lord Jesus, we need to see you, that you are the one who truly seeks after the lost. 
Holy Spirit, we need you so that you might open up our eyes to see what love the Father has for us in Christ. We need you to do this divine work because under our own power and our own strength, it would never happen. So as you are speaking to us, give us listening ears. Would you get deep into our hearts to show us our sin, but yet apply the healing balm of the gospel? Thank you, Lord Jesus, for another night where we might see you and behold your glory. And we ask all this in your name. Amen. What is the most important thing that you have learned about in being a Christian? There's a famous story in our denomination from a pastor by the name of Joe Novenson. When Joe and uh, his three kids had gotten old enough, he had wanted to spend some time reflecting on how good of a, a Christian parent he was. And so he asked each one of his kids a question. He asked them, what's the most important thing I've taught you about being a Christian? The oldest answered, always do what God says. The second also answered, always do what God tells you. But the third one said this, God loves me no matter what. After hearing this from his kids, Joe sarcastically thought to himself, great, I've raised two Pharisees and one Christian. What is a Pharisee? Maybe you never heard that term before, thought about who they are. Well, Pharisees were those who thought they could earn God's love by obeying enough. Matter of fact, it was this group that started out as like a political party amidst uh, these conquering na- these nations who had conquered Israel, and they were going to be the good guys. And by them being really, really good, what they would do is they would make everyone else around them really good. But you had to obey. You always had to obey. And if you messed up, God wouldn't love you. That's essentially what they're saying. And so what happened is that as they began to maybe outwardly obey, they began to trust in themselves that they were good enough. That's what we call self-righteousness. That you think that in yourself, you are righteous and you don't need any help. But this is what Paul speaks against in Romans 10 verse 3 when he says, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. That's what self-righteousness does. You embrace your own righteousness rather than embracing God's righteousness. Jesus says this before he tells a parable that we'll look at later this semester where it says in Luke 18 verse 9, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. That's what self-righteousness does. The problem is not obedience. God calls us to obedience. God's law is good. The problem is we're not But an even deeper problem is that we think that somehow we're good enough in and of ourselves to earn this righteousness. That's the problem. The problem is when we look at ourselves and we say, I've got it going on and other people need to get to my level. That's what we do in self-righteousness. Arguably, we could say that self-righteousness is the biggest issue in the world today. Because what we're seeing more and more in our polarizing world is this, is people saying of whatever they believe, wherever they stand, they're saying, my way of living is right, and others need to be as good as I am. But the gospel says this, hate to break it to you, 
But your way of living is wrong. God's way of living is right. But here's what God did. He didn't wait on you to get your act together. He came to you. He came to you in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus died on the cross so that you might not have to die. He came to give you life. That's what the gospel says. Really, the question boils down to this. This is the whole reason why Jesus is telling this parable is this. Will you embrace his grace? Will you embrace the grace that is in the gospel? That's what Jesus is telling the Pharisees and scribes who are listening to him. Will you embrace God's grace? Look at verses 25 to 29. Self-righteousness refuses to embrace grace. You see, the Pharisees and the tax, uh, excuse me, the Pharisees and the scribes who had gathered around to see Jesus welcoming these sinners, it says, actually, if you look back up at verse 2, it says they were grumbling. They were murmuring. They were complaining. They were, I love what one person says, they were fault finders. Or we could put it this way, they were sin hunters. They only wanted to see the problems where people had sinned, where people had failed, but not in themselves. It's the same word used of the Israelites in the wilderness when they grumbled against God and Moses' leadership. It's essentially like they're saying this, Jesus seems to be spending all of his time with those people. He's not doing enough for us. They're grumbling because Jesus was gladly receiving sinners. And really the tension here is this. This is why I read Ezekiel 34 earlier. The question is, who is really being the shepherd? Who is really seeking after the lost? Is it the Pharisees or is it Jesus? That's why Jesus is telling this parable. That's why he tells three parables in a row about seeking what is lost. Because that's what Jesus is doing. It is interesting that grumbling is seen in the early churches as one of the biggest ingredients that causes division. Interestingly, it's actually not the gross sins or the very, very heinous sins that people do, but do you know what divides and destroys churches most? Gro- I mean, uh, excuse me, not gross sins, but grumbling. Are you known as a person who can always find something wrong with someone or something? When people think about you, is that what they think about? Grumbling appears in words, in rolling eyes, shaking heads, and in other body language. Grumbling appears on social media and in group knees and in texting. See, and this is what the Pharisees are doing. And Jesus is trying to show them, that the Pharisees, he's trying to show them that you are like the older son. The older son is the self-righteous one. And this digs deep. So look at verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came, he drew near to the house and he heard music and dancing. He called to one of the servants and asked him what these things meant. The servant said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and he refused to go in. What's the older son doing? He's in the field, he's doing his own thing. Because life for the self-righteous is all about them. One person says, at a feast like this in this parable, the older son, the eldest son, which would be this person, they would be expected to be the family's representative for the father. They would circulate among the guests and they would make sure everyone had enough to eat. 
And even if the older son, even if he was upset with his father, he would have been expected as a host to be calm and collected and afterward address his father. But that's not what happens. Another person says this, normally an older brother would be expected to help reconcile a father and a younger brother. Two strikes and this guy's, well, let's just say two strikes and you're out, right? That's this guy. The Pharisees, they were supposed to be the people who would seek after the tax collectors and sinners, but they're standing back in their own self-righteousness. You see, what self-righteousness does is this. It fails to move towards others, but it demands that others move towards them. Self-righteous people love to gossip, but they might not call it gossip, but they will allow others to grow in critical feelings towards people. If self-righteous people have been wronged, then they will sit back and wait to be approached rather than reaching out. Self-righteous people don't make changes, and they fail to approach other people to help change happen. And why? Because they believe that they are right and that they don't have to do anything. Let me ask you a question. Are you someone who moves towards someone or are you someone who talks about someone? Are you someone who moves towards someone or are you someone who talks about someone? Self-righteous people, we put it this way, they're not like a Motel 6 whose slogan says, we'll leave the lights on for you. What self-righteous people do is they put up fences and signs and they say, until you fix yourself, you can't come in. Self-righteous people, like we see with the older son, they struggle to really love God because really they love themselves most. That's really what self-righteousness is. That's what this younger son is doing. He doesn't really care about his father He just loves himself. Self-righteous people, they look like they're mature Christians. And they can appear to be very obedient to the outward eye, but really they're only doing it for their resume. Why do self-righteous people, why do they love themselves more than God? Well, either this, either one, because they actually really aren't a Christian. They're really still trapped under the power of sin. And they're believing the lie that Satan continues to proclaim. You can be God. And they say, I can do it. And I'll use Christianity as that means. But self-righteousness, it still lingers remnants of it in Christians. Because every day we have to learn to die to ourselves, take up our cross and follow Jesus. Oswald Sanders says this, egotism is one of the most repulsive manifestations of pride. It is the practice of thinking and speaking much of oneself, the habit of magnifying one's own attainments or importance. It leads someone to consider everything in its relation to himself rather than in relation to God and the welfare of his people. Self-righteousness is this. It's too much self. Like the older son... Self-righteousness also holds grudges and boils in bitterness. No doubt is what the older son felt. How different was he from the father? Ever since his younger brother left, he couldn't stand it. He had taken so much of what was supposed to be his, and now the audacity of this guy to be welcomed back, which, by the way, would bring him back into part of the inheritance that was left over, stealing, as it were, from the older brother, 
You see, self-righteous people love to hold grudges and they boil in bitterness. They fail to see any change in someone else and they can never get over the past. See, the reason why self-righteous people do this is because they're forgetting the reality of the gospel of grace and they only think about sin. The gospel involves remembering that there is sin, but the gospel is far more than just remembering that there is sin. That's what the older brother is doing. But what is it that bothers the older brother so bad? You see that he, he draws near the house. Look at the end of verse 25. What does he hear? He hears music dancing. Here's a party. Actually, uh, what some people say is that this would be a party of such size, especially with the fat and calf, that this would be equivalent to a wedding. It'd be the event for the community. And this guy does not like that. Because here's what self-righteous people do. They cannot stand whenever they're left out of something. They can't stand whenever they're left out. They have, as it were, this, this FOMO. Because self-righteous people feel that they must be at the center of everyone's life. If someone is going to be noticed, it's going to be me. Self-righteous people, they complain when others get the same amount of attention that they do, even though they know that they're much better people than those other people. See, why do self-righteous people feel this way? Is because they feel threatened when they don't get the spotlight anymore. Do you know why many sports athletes fear their records being broken? They fear their records being broken because it would mean that they're no longer in the spotlight. It's the same way with self-righteous people. Like the older brother, the self-righteous people, they have to be in control. The older brother, he, he feels very out of control. How is this happening without him controlling this? Because this is his, this is his land now. Self-righteous people, they have to have control. They have an idolatry of control. And when we have an idolatry of control, we love to control other people. And whenever we feel like we can't control other people, here's what we do. We give up on them. We talk bad about them. We gossip about them. We promote bad ideas of them. And that's exactly what the Pharisees and scribes are doing. These people aren't looking like godly people, like what we've been working so hard to, to make these people be law-abiding citizens. Why is Jesus embracing these tax collectors and sinners? See, we do the same thing whenever we're self-righteous, we hate not being able to control someone else's Christian life. You see, we do not, when we're self-righteous, we do not like to be patient and let God be God because once again, we like to believe Satan's lie in Genesis 3 that you can be God. You can make someone better by your own strength. But we don't like God's timing. We don't like to trust, you know, the power of the gospel. But when we're self-righteous, we need to learn and we need to stop trying to be the Holy Spirit and we need to start trusting the Holy Spirit. The older son's very self-righteous and he gets angry. Look at what he gets angry about. Verse 26 talks about how this, one of the servants come out to him and says, hey, look, your brother's come home. Your father's killed the fattened calf. He's welcomed him back. He's received him. Verse 28 says, but he was angry. 
He's furious. He can't stand the thought that somehow this reject of a brother who's brought so much embarrassment upon their family has brought back and people are acting like it's okay. Do you not see what they've done? One person says that when this, this word for anger, when this word group is applied to human anger, criticism is usually explicit in that meaning or implicit. See, we do need to remember this. Once again, it is not always the gross sins, the very heinous upfront sins that you hear about that would destroy something like RUF, but you know what will? Criticism. Criticism will. Criticism has always been what has been destroying the church. Just read Paul's letters to the Corinthians. Criticism is something self-righteous people do, and they do it constantly because people never live up to their standards. You think you know it all and no one else's opinion matters and everyone else has to form their ideas around you. On a cold February night in 2001, a girl named Erica, who was only one years old, somehow managed to wander out of her house and she spent the entire night outside. Her mother, Layla, found the little girl and Erica appeared to be totally frozen. Her legs were stiff, her body frozen, all signs of life appeared to be gone. But when Erica was treated at Edmonton Stollery Children's Health Center, um, which I believe would be in Canada, to the amazement of the doctors, the toddler showed no sign of brain damage. They gave Erica a clear prognosis that she would soon hop and skip and play like all the other girls of her age. No doubt the mother celebrated, right? She found her daughter. But you know what self-righteous people do? They would look at Erica and say, Shame on you for getting lost. They don't celebrate when someone's found, but they love to criticize for someone for being lost. Not many of us are like Abraham Lincoln who once said, he has the right to criticize who also has the heart to help. Lots of times our criticism comes about and we, we love to criticize, but we really don't care to help out. Let me ask you some reflection questions. Are you constantly grumbling about food, house, friends, the news, what other people do, what other people wear, how you look, how others look, what decisions your leaders make, your parents, your boyfriend, girlfriend, teachers, etc.? Are you just known as a grumbler and a criticizer? It's actually interesting, the same word in verse 28 where it says, but he was angry. It's the same word Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 22, when he says anger in the heart, even if you don't act on it, is worthy of hell. Self-righteousness is not something you just play around with. Self-righteous people get angry when people who are worse than them receive any sort of favor. He, older son hates that his younger brother, who's clearly a worse person than he is, but he's received favor. The Pharisees and the scribes are so mad at Jesus for pouring into those types of people. It's just a waste of time. Anger is what Jonah felt whenever he saw the Ninevites receive mercy from God. It was, Jonah was so angry, actually, that he wanted to commit suicide. That's what self-righteousness can do. 
Self-righteous people are so angry that they fail to look for the good in someone else's life. It's, if I can kind of put it this way, it's kind of like Gru from Despicable Me. It's kind of like Gru's mom. You know, he's building all this stuff and he says, look, mom, this, look, mom, this. And I think it ends up with like, you know, I built the rocket ship that can go to the moon. And what does she say every time? Eh. Whenever self-righteous people see the smallest little bit of repentance in the furthest off center, they say, eh, I'm going to wait till they get to my level. Self-righteous people get angry when people embrace others worse than them. The older son is so angry at his father as well for embracing his younger son who's wasted everything. See, self-righteous people, they're never happy to see sinners draw near to Jesus. The self-righteous don't like to see certain people still in RUF right now. They're quick to look at any sign of repentance and just call it hypocrisy. Self-righteous people also get angry when people don't get what they deserve. Because self-righteous people are the people who are always keeping a scorecard and they know that they're in the lead and if someone's going to be recognized, it has to be them. Think about this. Can you celebrate when someone else does good? Can you celebrate whenever someone else gets a better grade on the very same test that you studied so hard for? Self-righteous people, they struggle to accept any feedback and they often deny any wrongdoing of their own. They love to give criticism, but they can't stand being criticized. That's often why when they tell you that, well, you can't judge me, but they've already judged you. What blinds the older son? You see, he... He refuses to go in. He can't stand it. He's saying, no, 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 I'm not going to do this. He creates this whole family drama in public, which here's what's so interesting. He's doing the same thing that his younger brother did. He offends the father. He causes a commotion. He's treating his father like he's dead. He doesn't care about his father. He's doing the exact same thing, but he's blind to it. And that's what happens with self-righteous people. You can't see your sin. You see, maybe you're sitting here and you're saying, well, I wish so-and-so was here to listen to this. Or I'll send so-and-so the recording of this. Or you're saying this, I know so-and-so is here and they better be listening to this right now. If you're saying that, that is a sign that you are self-righteous. Because what you're saying in that moment is, I know this and other people need to know this so they can get on my level. Matthew uh, 7 verse 5, Jesus says, You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Self-righteous people like the older brother, they won't associate with those people. They only like a certain group of people because they feel like their people have it all together and they're never going to enter someone else's world. Self-righteous people, frankly, here's where it is. They're obsessed with themselves. They give lip service to God, but really what they do is they say, I am God. It's the exact opposite of John 3.30. When John the Baptist talks about Jesus and he says, he must increase, I must decrease. But self-righteous people love to say this. I must increase and everyone else must decrease, even if it's Jesus.
and I'll do it in the name of Jesus. Self-righteousness is what destroys. It messes up marriages, it forfeits friendships, it fractures families, it promotes prejudice, it crushes churches, it wrecks work relationships, and it solidifies suspicion. Jesus is telling this parable to self-righteous people, and the question is this, will you repent of your self-righteousness and embrace God's grace? That's why he's telling it. Self-righteousness might refuse to embrace grace, but grace refuses to not embrace the self-righteous. Y'all ready for some good news? Let's hear some good news. Look at verse 29. But he answered, oh, excuse me, verse 28, second part of verse 28. His father, he came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've slaved for you. That's really a better translation than served. I've slaved for you, and I never disobeyed your commands. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, he's devoured your property with prostitutes. You had the audacity to kill the fattened calf for him? Father said to his older son, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It's fitting to celebrate and be glad. Your brother, he was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Grace refuses to stand back and wait. Amen? Grace is the picture of the father who comes out and entreats his son. But notice that the father didn't just do that just to his younger son. He did that to his older son. Do you not see the same thing? God loves to approach the self-righteous and the gross sinner. Here's one thing that people need to realize. It's very easy to become self-righteous towards the self-righteous people. But the gospel of grace teaches us to move towards people, not sit back and wait. That's what the father does. The father comes out and he entreats his son. He's trying to persuade his son. It means he never stopped entreating him. What Jesus is showing is that this is who God has always been for his people throughout all the Old Testament. Don't you see, my friends, the lengths which Jesus would go to save sinners? Jesus, have you ever seen this? You ever noticed this? Jesus has never said no to any invitation in the Bible. Even when Pharisees and scribes invited him over, he always said yes. Sometimes when he was there, he'd say some stuff that would offend him. But he would always come. He'd never sit back. He would approach. That's what grace does. Grace moves towards others rather than waiting. Grace knows that sinners, they love to stay where they are, so it moves towards. People who are gripped by God's grace, they're learning to be the first to approach others. Amen? I love how I just said that because we don't do that well. And I'm not just saying RUF, I'm saying Christians. Because we have to learn how to do that. Grace loves to, as the Father did, spend time and effort trying to persuade someone to come home. See, God, He loves to claim the people that the world and even the church loves to reject. God loves to claim them. And he is going out to the self-righteous son of his and he's looking at him saying, come home. Come and embrace the grace. Come into the celebration. 
It's awesome in there, right? He's inviting them in. God, in His grace, He isn't afraid to shame Himself, as it were. Did you notice that when the younger son came back, remember the father ran to meet his younger son, bringing shame on himself so that his younger son would not have to linger in shame any longer? It would have been very shameful again in this moment. In all the cultural context here, it would have said to the father that he should wait and they would have done the same ceremony. Remember the stoning ceremony in Deuteronomy 21? What the younger son deserved? The older son did the same thing, worthy of the same thing. But what does the father do? He moves towards him. Guys, even when you're in the depths of self-righteousness, God moves towards you. The countless times we sin against God. The picture that Jesus is painting is of a God who never sits back and says, oh, I'm going to use Andrew Moore as an example. Uh, shout out to Andrew Moore. He's never going to say, I can't stand it anymore what Andrew's doing. He's done it again. I'm going to wait till he cleans himself up and then he's going to come forward. He never does that. Definitively, in the scripture, right there, we see that God is, is being painted as someone who is always moving towards his people. It's amazing. Grace isn't quick to judge others or shame throw or be quick to exact justice, but rather in Ezekiel, I mean, excuse me, in Exodus 34, God says that he is slow to anger. You see, the son, he does not respond very well to his father. He looks at him, he says, he says, look, that would be very offensive back then. It wouldn't be addressing his father with the proper greeting. Notice that once again, he's just like his younger brother. He thinks he and his younger brother are like two totally different creatures. He's doing the same things. Watch. He says, I've, it says in your English text, I've served you. But it literally is the same Greek word for slave. He means, I don't, have a, I don't have a family relationship with you. I've slaved for you. You see, the older son was not treating his father like a father. He's just like his younger brother. It's so fascinating that the older brother says that he never disobeyed. But what's so funny is what Jesus says in Matthew 15, 8. These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. You might be honoring God with your lips or with your Instagram. But are you honoring him and obeying him in your heart? Notice that he doesn't want to celebrate with his father. He says this, you never even gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with who? My friends. I don't, want to, I don't want to have a party with you. He's just like his younger brother. He even says this. Notice that when the servant came out and he says, hey, your brother has come back. But how does the older brother speak about his younger brother? He says, this son of yours. There's no relation. He's even not just saying that he's rejecting his, his uh, younger brother he is literally to his father's face. He is rejecting his father. He's saying, I'm not part of this thing. But what does God's grace do? God's grace moves toward. It actually, it soaks in anger. It overlooks faults. You see, self-righteousness is like bad breath. 
You can't smell it, but everyone else can. But even when God smells your self-righteous bad breath, he moves towards. See, grace patiently absorbs the criticism. Grace is almost like the pillow that you yell into, and after you get done yelling, it's almost like, I'll be here tomorrow. Grace will stand up for the truth, but grace is patient. Grace forgives sins. God in His grace is forgiving sins like the Father to His Son right here. I love the story. In May 1987, 39 American Navy soldiers, they were killed in the Persian Gulf when an Iraqi pilot hit their ship. It was the USS Stark, and it hit it with a missile. And The son of one of these men, John Kaiser, he was age five. He stood with his hand on his heart as his father's ca- uh, coffin was loaded onto the plane to go to the U.S. John's mother said this, I don't have to mourn or wear black because I know my husband is in heaven. I am happy because I know he is better off. Here's what's crazy. Later, she and her son, they sent a letter in an Arabic New Testament to the pilot of the Iraqi plane. And they addressed and they said this to the man who attacked the USS Stark, dad's ship, in the hope that it will show that even the son and the wife, they do not hold any grudge and are at the same time praying for the one who took the life of our father. That is the grace of the gospel. Grace forgives sins. God says in Isaiah 1 verse 18, come now, let us... Let's reason together. Though your sins, they're like scarlet. They shall be as white as snow. Don't you want that? Grace assures us. It assures us that even though our life is a mess, it tells us there is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ. But here's what's also amazing about God's grace. Look at verse 31. Son, you are always with who? Me. God's grace is not about grace in and of itself. It is about God. What God's grace is, is not God throwing you something tangibly in and of itself that's called grace. Grace of God, as you would read in actually A.W. Pink's book, The Attributes of God. God's grace is God giving himself to you even though you did everything to reject him. To receive God's grace is to receive God even though you hated him. The father is telling the son, you hated me, but I have always been here with you. And my friends, some of you hate God. Some of you are still struggling with your hatred towards God and it's just overflowing in your self-righteousness. But Jesus Christ has moved towards you. He's moved towards you in his grace. He's coming after your heart He's doing what he did with Jonah, and Jonah was so self-righteous. But God will do, if he loves you, God will do all that it takes to bring you back to himself. Amen? You see, grace is Jesus Christ giving himself to you. And if Jesus gives himself to us, why would we not give ourselves to others? Will you embrace God's grace? Jesus is telling this parable because he's inviting you in. 
He's inviting you in actually like he's doing with the Pharisees and scribes. He's inviting them in. It's like Fjolder, Fjolder, if you can say that name. Dude, I, y'all know I can't talk. Fjolder Dostoyevsky. Please, my literature majors, please come correct this. My mom's going to be very ashamed when she listens to this. He says this. At the last judgment, Christ will come and say to us, Come, you also. Come, drunkards. Come, weaklings. Come, children of shame. Come, self-righteous. Anyone, come to Jesus Christ. And you will be found. See, grace offends us. We don't like it because it shows us how messed up we are. But grace also shows us what Jesus Christ has done to bring us home. Because Jesus is actually the true older brother. Do you see that? The older brother is supposed to be the one who goes out to get his lost younger brother. Jesus is the eternal son of God who goes out to save his lost family. That's what he does. The story is told in 1929, a man named George Wilson who had robbed a mail carrier and killed him. He was sentenced to death but received a presidential pardon. To the shock of the Oval Office, this guy rejected the pardon. The President of the United States had set him free, but George Wilson had said no. The case went all the way to the Supreme Court, and the issue was simply this. If the President of the United States gives you a pardon, are you not pardoned? Can you reject a pardon given by a sovereign? Chief Justice Marshall rendered the decision and simply read this. A pardon is rejected, or excuse me, a pardon that is rejected is no pardon at all. Unless the recipient of the pardon accepts the pardon, then the pardon cannot be applied. A pardon has two sides, the, the offerer and the offeree. Unless the offeree accepts the offer from the offerer, then the pardon cannot be mandated. This is the point of the parable of Jesus reaching out, not just to the Pharisees, but 2,000 years later to you right now tonight. Will you embrace God's grace or will you sit in your self-righteousness? Because all those who run to Jesus Christ, with no matter what sins they have, there will be no more shame. But those of you who linger in self-righteousness, you will see what one day you're missing out on and is the greatest celebration that there is. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ tonight and you will be saved. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would dig deep into our hearts, our hearts that are so often just so full of self. We need your mercy. The mercy that is in the gospel, the mercy that is seen in the Father moving towards his Son. And thank you, because we are people who struggle with self-righteousness. But as we see the gospel, may we move towards others. And may we see the love of Christ as others move towards us. We ask all this in his great and glorious name. Amen.